Go and make disciples of all nations. We know that. Great commission. And we do that because of the love of Jesus. Jesus wants to transform our lives, change our lives. He has done that for us, and he said, now I want you to go and do that for others as well. This morning I want to follow up a little bit on our conversation that we started last week about our, how and where our church needs to be going in order to be effective in this process as the Lord has called us. Now we know that we need to continue to be missional-minded in reaching the world for Christ because God still loves the world. As part of who we are as a Christian and missionary alliance, a great commission, go and make disciples, is a core of our being. But that same commission speaks to what we are to be doing right here in the Ann Arbor area, or greater Ann Arbor area. So we also need to be missional-minded in our strategies for reaching out and sharing Christ with those around us, especially as we look cross-culturally to reach perhaps a younger generation. And as I was thinking about that, my mind went to the Apostle Paul as one who did both extremely well, both missions and evangelism, sharing Christ. Now, why was that? Once he had encountered Christ on the road to Damascus and his life was absolutely transformed by Jesus' love, his heart's desire, his goal in life, as he says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, was to win as many as possible because he wanted them to experience what he had experienced. It was amazing how God used Paul, both as a missionary and an evangelist, but what made him so effective Let me share with you this morning briefly a number of reasons why I think Paul was so effective, and these reasons translate to us individually and as a church as well. I'm going to go through the first seven fairly fairly quickly here. The the first one is that he had the right message. He had the right message. One of the reasons that people aren't effective in Christ, in sharing Christ, is because they don't really know what the message is. They're not sure about the content of the gospel, or they're afraid that if they start a conversation with somebody, they're going to ask a question, and and, uh, just I'm not sure what the answer is going to be, and so we don't start the process in the first place. But Paul was effective because he really knew the message. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For what I received I pass on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he went on from there. He knew the message. Secondly, Paul was effective in missions and reaching out in that he had a compelling motive. He had a compelling motive. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we must all appear from before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, while we're alive here on earth right now, whether good or bad. We've got to give an answer. So in other words, he, he knew that he was going to face the record of his life at some point before Jesus Christ. And later on, he said in the same chapter, uh, for Christ's love compels me. It compels him to share the gospel. He was motivated by Christ's love and to hear Jesus say to him at the end, well done, Paul. Thirdly, he had a sense of a divine call. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, said, I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He knew God had called him. He knew God had commissioned him. We all have that same commissioning to one degree or another because the Great Commission says, go. He's talking to all of us. Go and make disciples. Fourthly, he was successful because he had a great boldness. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, and then to the Gentile, the non-Jews. Folks, we need too need to pray for that boldness. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation. It's not us. It's not in our ability. It's not in the the wonderful words that we might come up with or great arguments. It's the power of God. God will do the work if we are faithful. Number five, he had the energizing of the Holy Spirit. He knew what it was to walk in the Spirit. He knew what it was to be kept filled with the Spirit. He knew what it was to be obedient to the Spirit as the Spirit was leading him and guiding him. He knew what it was to avoid quenching or grieving the Spirit. And because of that, the Holy Spirit could then use him in a powerful way as he spoke to those that were around. Number six, sixth reason was that he had a strategy. He had a strategy. We get a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 18 um, as he was ministering in the city of Corinth. We see that he first went to the synagogue. Who were in the synagogue? It was the Jews that were in the synagogue. So he first went to the Jews to win Jews to Christ. And then he had a group of co-evangelists, co-workers, co-ministers with him that he worked with and trained. And then they would go out and they would set their eyes on the Gentile or the non-Jewish community, everybody, everybody else on the outside. But he had that same strategy everywhere he went. He had a method. He had an approach. And so we too need to develop a strategy to reach a particular people group. With no strategy, we're just going to spin our wheels. You know what spinning wheels tends to do? It starts getting you into a rut. The seventh reason, and this is really important, he had an unwavering desire to see people saved. He loved people. He cared that people would not go to hell. He cared that they come to Christ out of the love for Christ. He said in Romans 1.14, I am an aphiletes in Greek. I am a debtor as one who owes somebody else. He's saying, I know something they desperately need to know, even if they don't know that they need to know it. That makes me responsible to tell them. I'm obligated to tell them. I see them on a path to destruction. I know the the answer that that will take them off that particular path, and I owe them at least the message. What they do with the message, that's on them. But I'm obligated to at least give them the message. There's one more reason that Paul was successful in his outreach and missions effort, and it's the one I want to focus most of our attention on this morning. And that is that he had decided to sacrifice anything and everything in his life if it might mean he could win more people to Christ. He was willing to set aside everything to win people. He actually goes into some detail in explaining 
what that meant and how he did that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles or you've got your electronic device, uh, look that up if you would please. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and we're going to start with verse 19. I'll give you just a quick moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, which is the law of Christ's love. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Paul is saying that he would do anything to win some to Christ. Anything. In verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That's the point. That's the focus. That is the heart of his heart. And that's the point of his whole pa- this whole passage, to win as many as possible, to win the Jews, to win the Gentiles, those under the law, those not having the law, to win the weak. He's willing to do whatever is necessary. So he starts off there in verse 19, says, Though I am free and belong to no one. He's saying, I've learned that a relationship to God is not a relationship related to any sort of ritual. He's saying, I, as, as a former Pharisee, he had, he had just come out of that whole ceremonial, legalistic, religious system. And he's saying that it's not a relationship related to, in, in any sense to custom or to traditions or to ceremonies. He's no longer bound to keep those Jewish ceremonies. He's talking about the ceremonial things. I'm not bound to maintain the Sabbath day. I'm not bound to eat certain things and, or not eat certain things. I'm not bound to certain ways of cooking or certain patterns uh, of cooking those things or certain uh, fe- feasts of the moon and the festivals and the festivals, the feasts. I am no longer bound to Jewish cer- ceremony or Jewish tradition. On the other hand, he says very quickly, I am also free from all ceremony of Gentile tradition as well. He's bound to no man. So it's, it's, whether it's Jewish, whether it's uh, others, I am free from all the routines and rituals of the Gentile life as well. The reason he was free from all that was because of his relationship of, uh, with God through Jesus Christ based on the work that Jesus did in his life. And that is personal and internal and separate from all the external things. Because of that, Paul says, I have the liberty. We talked about that this morning. We've got the liberty in Jesus to reject all this ceremony and all the rituals, all the externals, and all the other side issues, no matter what people group we might be looking at, Jews, Gentiles, or anybody else. Actually, Gentiles does mean everybody else. And that's true, isn't it? That's absolutely true. He had the freedom just as we do in Christ. 
The actual Greek transliteration says, for though I am free from all men. The word used for from is a small Greek uh, preposition, ek, which means out of. I have been freed from out of all of man's rules and rituals and ceremonies that they have put into place. It's like being freed from a, a vat of mud or a vat of molasses that's holding us down. I've been taken out of all those kind of cons- uh, kinds of constraints. Like every Christian, Paul saying, I'm free to enjoy the liberty in Christ. But, but, he says, though I am free... I have made myself a slave to everyone. Now, that just sounds crazy. Absolutely nuts. Why? Why would he do that? He didn't have to technically, but he chose to do it. He chose to do it. It is a paradox, but it's not really an uncommon paradox when it comes to this topic. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 21 in the first six verses, it actually talks about the, uh, the freedom of, of slaves. And it says that after being a slave for six years, the owner could have a slave. After six years, they were obligated to free the slave. No choice. They had to free their slave. But the slave also had the right to stay if he wanted to. Because he learned, had learned to appreciate and love his master. The master had been a kind master. He had taken care of him and had taken care of his family. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to work here. This is good. Listen, quote from Exodus 21, verse 5. But if the servant declares, I love my master and I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges, make it legal. He shall take him to the door, now this is kind of tough, or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. But that's the, the choice of the servant, not the master. Now, the word that Paul uses to make himself a slave is a very strong word. It's that same connotation. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 7.15 in relation to the marriage bond. We're bound to each other for life. It's the same word used in Romans 6, verse 18, and again in verse 22, to speak of the union with Christ. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness because we love Jesus. It's a word of, of just super strong and the tightest kind of union. He's saying, I'm going to bind myself to you. This is kind of what Paul is saying. I'm going to bind myself to you, do whatever it takes to reach you, to minister to you, to meet your needs. And he's denying himself in the truest sense of the, of, of the meaning not considering his own desires to be able to do that. He was actually following the pattern of Jesus. If you remember in Mark chapter 10, whoever wants to be first must what? Become a slave to all, he had said. Same word. And and that's exactly what Jesus himself was in the very next verse. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, same, same word, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was our example. So Paul is saying, I'm willing to sacrifice everything to be your servant. The obvious question someone might ask was, well, just how far do you have to go in this? That's just really kind of an extreme thought. Remember my mom's question I mentioned last uh, last week? uh, Just how far do you have to bend? The answer would be just as far as it needs to go to reach somebody. 
How many things do you, do you set aside to reach somebody? Anything that stands in the way. Why? Paul gives a reason there at the end of verse 19, to win as many as possible. To win as many as possible. So how does that work? Well, starting in verse 20, he gets into some very practical applications, showing us how it worked for him. To the Jews, he said, I became like a Jew. Now, he was telling the Corinthians, the people, the believers in Corinth, that when he was ministering among the Jews, whatever their ceremonial law dictated, he did. If it was important for them to have a certain meal prepared in a certain way, fine, he did it. If it was important for them to celebrate a certain day in in a certain way, fine, he, he did that too. If it was important for them to follow a certain pattern of things, he did that as well. Not that it was important for him any longer as a way to gain God's favor or relate to have a relationship with God. These now just became things to do. Why did he do it? To win the Jews. That was the purpose. So what's Paul saying here? Is he saying that you win people to Christ by accommodating yourself or or by adapting? No, he's saying you gain the right to speak the truth by accommodating yourself or by adapting. If you go in and offend people, you lose that right just like that. As you may know, in India, many of the Hindus are vegetarian. And they're vegetarian for religious purposes, mostly. Many of their animals are considered gods or manifestation of gods. Uh, For the most part, they believe in reincarnation and believe that if you haven't done what is good in this life, you could be reincarnated into an animal. So let's not eat the animals. When we were there, we found that some international workers that were reaching out and sharing Christ had given up eating meat and would only eat vegetarian. Not because of any moral, religious, or even dietary reasons, but for the sake of the people they were trying to reach in order that they would have the right to be heard and not to offend. The people who my wife and I were trying to reach out to, the upper caste, uh, many of whom were upper class, it was interesting, but we found many of them had given up the practice of vegetarianism. Many of them had gone to eating meat and were very serious about eating meat. So one of our tasks was that as we began to meet our neighbors and we began to meet their friends, we had to kind of ascertain who would eat meat and who would not eat meat. If they didn't eat meat, we didn't eat meat when we were with them. If they ate meat, we ate meat. If they invited us over to their home and they, they ate meat, we said, I'm sorry, I'm vegetarian, I'm not going to eat it. Excuse me? There would there, be an offense that could, could easily be taking. Take it. Nancy learned quickly how to bake without eggs. Apparently applesauce is a good substitute uh, for eggs as, as you're baking. Uh, we, when we'd invite them over to our home for chai and some snacks in the evening or even for a meal, Nancy would be sure that they knew that the banana bread or the zucchini bread didn't have uh, eggs in it. We accommodated ourselves in order to build relationships and earn the right to be heard and for Jesus to be seen in our lives. Do you remember how far Paul and Timothy went to accommodate in order to share Christ with the Jews? In Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 1, we read this. 
Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, so she was a Christian Jewish woman, but whose father was a Greek or a Gentile. Now, it's a mixed marriage. Religiously, it's a mixed marriage, Jew and Gentile. And as you, that, that's what the Samaritans were. Remember the whole area of Samaria? That's uh, what the majority of Samaritans were. And you remember how despised they were in the eyes of the Jews. And since Timothy's father was a Gentile, Timothy then would be considered a Gentile. And unfortunately, his mother would be considered a traitor for having married a Gentile. But verse 2 goes on to say that the believers of Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, spoke well of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. Paul liked what he heard about Timothy. He thought, you know, I, I can use this guy, I can work with him, and we can minister together. So in verse 3, he goes on to say, and so he, Paul, circumcised him, Timothy. Wait, what? <laughs> Seriously? Didn't Paul preach so strongly about the fact that circumcision is no longer necessary or of any significance when it comes to faith in Christ? That's one of those ceremonial legalistic things under the law that we no longer are under, right? Wasn't it now all about the circumcision of the heart? We talked about that when we looked at Colossians back during the time of Easter, the cutting away of the old sinful nature. And the first church council in Jerusalem that was presided over James in Acts chapter 15, they made a ruling that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. So why in the world did Paul make Timothy go through that painful process, for goodness sake? I mean, that's extreme. Isn't Paul making Timothy compromise his new freedom in Christ by making him go back to being obligated to the law? Why would Paul do such a thing? Verse 3 there of Acts 16. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Yeah, so why is that important? If we go back to Paul's strategy of evangelism and missions, you'll remember the first stage of his strategy was to do what? It was to reach the Jews, go to the synagogue. Go to every town to the Jews first. And he knew that his co-worker would have to have acceptability among the Jews if he is trying to share Christ with them. And so here's a guy from a mixed marriage. We're talking about Timothy here, which is going to be disgusting in the eyes of the Jews. But Timothy can't do anything about his heritage. That, that, nothing you can do about that. The Jews all, will automatically look down on him as one of those horrible, uncircumcised son of a Gentile. So Paul says we need to circumcise him, not for salvation, but to have entrance into the Jewish community in order to share Christ with them. So the Jews will at least accept him as a proselyte. A proselyte uh, means somebody who has adopted into or adapted into the Jewish religious system, into Judaism. So, so does that violate grace? No. Timothy wasn't doing it to be saved. That's very clear back in verse, verse 1 where it describes him as a disciple known 
named Timothy. He was already a disciple of Christ. He was already a believer. It was only to enable him to have entrance into the Jewish community, to be accepted by them, to be heard. Did being circumcised take away from, from any part of Timothy's faith in Christ? No. Did it compromise his freedom in Christ? No. Not one iota. And here these guys were willing to go to the, to the extreme to do something radical because they realized that this was vital to open up communication lines with people that they were trying to reach. So the question for us might be, to what extreme are we willing to go to reach another generational culture that is not like our own? They do things differently, don't they? It's a younger culture. They, they may not be comfortable that we might not be comfortable with. But since when did comfortability play any role in God's economy? Back to 1 Corinthians 9.20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Then he seems to double down on that concept, just to make sure they knew exactly what he was talking about. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Prime example is what Timothy was willing to do. And he quickly adds, however, though I myself am not under the law. He, He was not confused at all. Just to be clear, he was saying, that has nothing to do with my salvation I do this, why so as to win those under the law? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jews still. Jesus still loves the Jews even to this day, and he wants them to come to him and to love him. He was really serious about this. Paul was. Listen to what he writes in Romans 14.5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives, listen, none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for whom? We live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We are His possession. Then in verse 21, he he moves from the Jews to the Gentiles, to those not having the law. Talking about the Jewish law. They're not under that law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Uh Uh-oh, we might say, Paul's really gone liberal here. huh? He just wants to have a good time and live it up. Get out from all all those restrictions. I'm going to spend my time with those loose and carefree liberal Gentiles. It's just so much more fun. No, that, that, that wasn't the purpose. That wasn't the reason. It's not what he was saying at all. He's not talking about moral laws. Look at the parentheses that he adds quickly. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, the law of love. He's still being directed by Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not compromising his morals, and we should never do that either as we look and reach out. But it's the ceremonial laws he's talking about, the laws and practices of no uh, really spiritual consequence anymore. Why did he do that? So as to win those not under the law. When he went to Antioch in Galatians chapter 2, he ate where the Gentiles ate and ate it the way they prepared it, which was not kosher. 
as far as the Jewish, uh, Jewish laws. And even when Peter came to see them there, he said, oh, this is kind of cool. And he started eating the way the Gentiles ate as well. Didn't seem to have a problem with it until some Jewish leaders from Jerusalem came. And, oh, no. And he got uh, all, all flustered and he became more afraid of what they would think than the hearts and lives of the Gentiles that were there. And he went back to doing the Jewish thing, trying to insist that the Gentiles do it too. And Paul was ticked. <laughs> Paul was ticked. He says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? Because, quote, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. They were, in fact, hindering the gospel by trying to bring these Gentiles under, under the laws and regulations, again, of the Jewish system. Question for us, what practices or customs do we have that might hinder the gospel? You may say, none. We're good. You know, I, I don't believe that there's anything that really hinders the preaching of the gospel to thus those of us who are accustomed to a particular older church culture. We're, we've gotten used to it. But to a younger generation culture, there may be a lot of things that hinder the gospel from being heard. We need to consider. When Paul was with the Gentiles, he was quite willing to fall into the Gentile pattern and customs. Why? So he wouldn't offend them. He wanted to have an opportunity to be welcomed and to be trusted. He wanted to become as much like them as possible in order to earn the right to be heard. He had... Uh, if, if he had gone with a Gentile home and taken his own food with him, well, you can just imagine how offensive that would be to a Gentile, uh, the Gentile folks that had invited him. You know, I remember being on a week-long evangelism tri- trip in, uh, in Ivory Coast with a few of my Ivorian brothers in ministry. And each day we would go to a different village and we, we would uh, be showing the Jesus film in the Bauli language. Uh, we'd be sleeping in their little mud huts with thatched roofs, and we'd hear the crawling of insects and little things be falling down uh, dur- during the night. And um, we ate all kinds of food. And by the third or fourth day into the trip, one of the men came to me and says, You know, you're like the old-time missionaries. You eat all of our food. You're not like some of the younger missionaries. He was talking about my colleagues the same age as I was. You're not like uh, these other. They come, they'll eat a little bit of our food, and then they'll go back to their tent or their, their hut, uh, open up their suitcase, and they've got their snacks and uh, things of that that they, they want to eat. I didn't even know they were watching, but that was huge in their eyes because I ate what they ate. I did things the way they did. You know, there's an African proverb that we had to learn in language study when we were in the Ivory Coast. It says, no matter how long a log sits in the water, it'll never become a crocodile. Think about that. I dropped over end of our first year or so on, on the mission field, and I dropped over to one of the church family's homes. Uh, some question I had I, I wanted to ask or something to do with the church. I'm, I'm not sure what it was. And it happened to be about the time that they prepared and they were going to eat their evening meal. And so because their culture is gracious. They, they are gracious. Come on and join us. And uh, they weren't expecting me, but I thought, okay. So I sat down with them, and they, they brought out what we lovingly referred to as toe and slime sauce. Now, toe is a cornmeal 
gloppy something. Um, it, 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 it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's weird, a little bit sticky, and they pile it all on top of each other, and you, you have to reach in and, and grab a hunk of this. The slime sauce, and that's our, our term for it, it's a, a sauce made out of boiled, boiled okra. Okay, you know what happens? Some, I see some faces, okay? I mean, it's, it's slime, right? And you take this kind of gloppy tool stuff, dip it in all, all with your hands, dip it into this slime sauce, you pop it in your mouth, and we found that there's a gag reflex right here. Oh, it's hard to get it down. But I was able to get it down without making a face, without gagging, and I ate enough to say, you know, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> but you know what? After I ate that right there at the time, they looked at me and says, now you're one of us. That was huge. I didn't know that was going to happen. No matter how long I lived with them, there was no way that I was going to become African. Okay, just, just not going to happen. But because I was willing to put aside my preferences and my likes or dislikes and adapted to them, they welcomed me. And it was a huge step towards being able to share the gospel with them and to lead them in a stronger relationship with the Lord and, and where they could begin to trust me. And there's a third group Paul mentions in verse 22. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. Now, who's he talking about there? Well, I think if we, need to, if we are consistent with Paul's theology, we have to understand that this is referring to what we might call as baby Christians, Christians who had just become, uh, have accepted Christ, uh, those who had made a decision for Christ there in that day, but who hadn't yet understood the liberty that they had in Christ. They still felt kind of guilty or obligated to, to go to the temple. Uh, they felt constrained to eat certain types of foods and not other kind of foods and prepare them in certain ways, and they had to celebrate certain Jewish uh, uh, festivals and, and feasts. They were still young in their faith still emerging out of their Judaism, but they hadn't gotten there quite yet. They were what we might call legalistic Christians. Oftentimes, that's what happens. We get stuck with the laws and trying to follow laws, not understanding the freedom. And Paul says they're still weak in the faith, so when I'm with them, I become like them. I'll adapt, he said. If they've got hang-ups, <laughs> so be it. I'll adjust. I'll let God deal with that. The Holy Spirit can bring them along in his time. See, Paul was very sensitive to people who were easily offended. His purpose? To win the weak. To win the weak. In Acts chapter 21, we see an amazing example of this. After having been with the Gentiles, ministering and doing his missionary work and, and preaching and starting churches, Paul is coming back to the Jewish community there in Jerusalem, and he's really anxious to, to see them because he's, he's brought a lot of money to help the poor believers in Jerusalem, money raised by those Gentile believers, those Gentile churches out, out there where he was, and he had this, and he was coming to present this to the Jewish believers, and he arrives in Jerusalem, and he meets with James and the other elders of the church in verse 18, and they greet him warmly. They're, just, you know, they're pleased to uh, see him, and they share with Paul the amazing news in verse 20 of how many thousands of Jews have believed. That's great, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Great news. And they say, all of them are zealous for the law. Isn't that interesting? 
He's telling Paul that they're all still quite legalistic. They're saved, but they haven't completely stepped out of Judaism and understood the freedom in Christ. Then he raises an issue, and the issue is with Paul. They have been informed, James tells Paul, they, the the believers in Jerusalem, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. Well, that wasn't true. Telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs, that wasn't really true either. But somebody has started this rumor, a lying rumor, and they apparently everybody was believing it. And now that Paul was back in Jerusalem, James and the other elders were they're, they're a little bit worried about what might take place. There might be an outcry among, among the believers there. So listen to the plan that they came up with for Paul. This is amazing. Quote, so do what we tell you, they said. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Now, they're talking about a Nazarite vow. You you understand the Nazarite vow? Samson had it. Samuel had it. John the Baptist had it for life. Uh, You could do a Nazarite vow for seven days, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever you decided. Um, It was something to, to give thanks to God for a blessing that God has given to you. Uh, they, would, they would not grow their hair. There would be certain eating restrictions. Um, and then at the end of the prescribed time, you shaved your head and you offered your hair as an offering. So they say to Paul, take these men, these four men that made this vow, join in their purification rites and pay for their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Could you imagine what might have gone through Paul's mind? I can imagine what would have gone through my mind, perhaps. Are you serious right now? You want me to do what? Don't you know that we are no longer under the law, but under grace? Do you not understand that we're free from all those ceremonial, uh, uh, all that ceremonial stuff? If they're, if they got a problem with me, let God deal with that. That's that's between them and God, or just have them come to me, and I'll, I'll tell them. I don't have to prove myself. After all, I am the Apostle Paul, called and set apart for his ministry. But do you know what he did? <laughs> Verse 26 of Acts 21, he said, Okay. Quote, The next day Paul took those men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. He went through the whole process with them. Why did he do that? Didn't he just compromise what he believed? He did it because they asked him to do it, because he knew that it would help those weaker brothers to see him in a different light. And if they could accept him as a person, as a minister of God, if they could accept him as a Jewish believer, then they would hear then what he had to say. He would then have an opportunity to share with them the freedom that we do have in Christ. Going through all those purification rites did not compromise his faith. He wasn't compromising the gospel. He didn't hinder his relationship with Christ. It didn't put him back under the law. 
But he now had a trusting relationship with, with these men and the other Jewish believers in the city, and they were now ready to listen to him. Listen, evangelism isn't all just preaching evangelism. A lot of times we think that's, that's what evangelism is, just going out and sharing Christ and, and preaching and, and telling other people about Jesus. A lot of it is pre-evangelism, preparing the way, preparing to be heard. So coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we see that he presented himself to the Jew as a Jew, to the Gentile as a Gentile, to the weak as a weak brother. Why? The end of verse 22 sums it all up. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I will do anything. See, he's just compromising. No, he's adapting. What's the difference? The difference between adapting, which is limiting your liberty, and compromise is the difference between what is optional and what is not optional. What do I mean? To adapt culturally means uh, to, to meet somebody at their own level, where they happen to be, is to set aside a liberty that I have that is actually optional for me in order to have a relationship with them and talk with them. To compromise is to set aside a truth that I have no business to set aside. Paul is very clear about that difference. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, unlike so many, he said, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. So obviously there were some then and there are many today who sell a cheap gospel. An easy gospel that is palatable to everybody and doesn't offend anybody. There's no preaching about the crucifixion and the crucified life. There's no preaching about sin and, and repentance or the preaching about the horrible consequences to sin. That's compromise when you set aside truth to please people. In Galatians 1.10, Paul writes clearly that he is not a pleaser of people. Uh, he said, I'm not going to set aside the truth for anybody. If a person is offended by the gospel, that's their problem. If a person is offended by the truth of the word of God, that's his problem. Now, he found a way to be able to present that in a way that was acceptable, in a way that was not offensive, and, and we need to be thinking about that as well. But if a person is offended by some behavior that I am doing that isn't necessary, my behavior isn't necessary, then I'll stop doing that because then that becomes my problem. As we begin focusing on and reaching out to a, to a younger generation, perhaps how we do worship here is not necessarily offensive to them. Perhaps it's no longer relevant to them. We wonder why our young people, some of our young people left the church, why young people all across the nation have been leaving the church. I think it's because oftentimes the church is no longer relevant to them. Church has been, become irrelevant in style, perhaps in music, perhaps in decor, uh, certainly in answers to their questions. I, I, a recent Barna survey, I, I, I read this the other day, showed that nearly half of young adults who had some kind of tie to Christianity, they were sort of brought up in the church, their parents uh, had attended church, believe the church can't answer their questions anymore. That's sad. 
The study survey surveyed uh, over 15,000 young adults in different countries, ages 18 to 35, who had ties to Christianity. Listen to some of the results. Only one-third, 33%, say they felt deeply cared for by those around them. Almost half of the young adults see Christianity as hypocritical. 31% of respondents said, quote, science also challenges their willingness to believe. 28%, one quarter of respondents said human suffering and conflicts around the world cause them to have doubts. 81% say present-day Christianity is judgmental. 74% of those who are no longer Christians said present-day Christianity is out of touch with reality. And the article concluded that churches are struggling to not only adequately respond to the questions of many young adults today, but are also struggling to raise up the next generation of church leaders. So there's much to accomplish. If we take that survey seriously, there's much to accomplish. How do we reach out? How do we teach and answer questions? Can the church not answer it? Yes, the church can answer it. Are we answering it? Perhaps not. Why? How we make them feel welcome when they come into the church. How we make them feel loved and cared for. That was a huge thing for them. How do we become relevant? At the very end of the passage in 1 Corinthians 9, Verses 22 and 23, Paul gives us the answer, I believe. We need to become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might save some. And we are going to do this. Why? Because we do all this for the sake of the gospel. The sake of the gospel. Let me close with a few verses that all of a sudden took on a whole new meaning, a very practical meaning to me, and I believe for our church as well. Familiar verses to you. Luke chapter 14, verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Where was Jesus carrying his cross to? It's to Calvary, to his death. We need to be willing to die to ourselves and all that that entails if we are to be called his disciples. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I, and all that it entails, my will, my desires, my preferences, I no longer live. None of that is, should be important anymore. Why? Because Christ lives in me. Now it's all about him. And why is that important? Because when Christ is true, truly living in us, Paul tells us in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you to will and an act in order to fulfill what? His good purpose. Not ours, His. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship sure you're understanding what, what this is saying. This, this is, wow, this is real life here. Giving up ourselves, our druthers, our, 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 our desires, our preferences for the sake of what Christ wants to do in the life of others. 
Romans 6.13, Paul says, Offer yourselves to God to those who have, uh, as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as instruments of righteousness. If we believe these verses, then we need to put them into action and allow God to do what he wants to do in any way he wants to do through us. Last Sunday, I stated that we can do this with God's help. My wife graciously reminded me that I should probably really reverse that statement. God can do this in our midst with our help if we offer every part of ourselves to him as instruments of righteousness so that God will work in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Are we there? We need to pray, be praying and asking God to bring us to that point if we're not there yet. Because we want to accomplish what he wants. He's got some amazing plans for this area, and we want to be a part of that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus and the fact that, that you sent him to die on that cross so that we can have our sins forgiven. He took our sins upon Him, self. So that we no longer have to physically die for that. But Father, we do need to acknowledge our sin, and we do need to ask You to forgive us our sins. And Christ would say, yes, that's what I've been wanting to do, and I will take those sins and I will put them there on that cross that I died on so long ago. And then our sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west, never to be thought of again. And Father, then you come and fill. We, we ask you to come into our lives and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be on the throne of my life. What a wonderful transformation takes place. And, and you start changing the way we see things. You, you, you're able to start working in our lives and start opening up possibilities that we've not, not seen before. And Father, don't let us be satisfied with having that relationship with Jesus. Open our eyes and our hearts to see those around us the way you see them. You love them. Give us a love, Father. If we don't have it already, give us a love for them. Let us or open our eyes and, and, and our minds to who the specific people are that you're already working in. How we can begin building relationships. And Father, if there's something that we need to do in our own personal lives, if there's something that we need to do within our church um, to, to either not offend them or to become more relevant, to, to become more uh, just a, giving, giving them an understanding that, that we, we love them and we want to reach them. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what those things are. We pray for that transformation in us personally, in us as a church, and we want you to use this church in a powerful way. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.